Well, good morning. It's good to uh, come out here again. I've really enjoyed it. And you can sure tell it's a holiday weekend, can't you? We do like to get away on the weekend. Well, it's Memorial Day. And that's a very special time in, in our history. And I want to talk a little bit about Memorial Day. And I want to use that as an opportunity to uh, talk a little bit about history and use a historical example then to illustrate what we've been teaching and learning about in terms of the victorious ascent of the Lord Jesus Christ to take the high ground in the angelic conflict. And then we're going to take that and we're going to tie it all into what, what happened as a result of that strategic victory. You've heard that term a lot, I'm sure, the strategic victory of Jesus Christ. Well, what in the world does all, all of that mean, and how does that really apply to what's going on today? And uh, I have my slide presentation, of course, that I've put together for this, depending on how far we get. And I'm just going to warn you now that there are a number of slides in here that probably have some points of technical exegesis on there. And if we don't have time to do that, you may feel frustrated as I fly through that, but... Uh, we're just, I just want to hit the high points, make sure that we understand the whole concept. But before we get started, we do need to make sure that we are in right relationship with the Holy Spirit, with the Lord. Make sure we're in fellowship uh, so that we can advance, grow, learn under the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit. So why don't we have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we do thank you that we have this privilege and opportunity to gather together this morning to study your word, that we live in a nation where we have the freedom to proclaim your word truthfully, unabashedly, unashamedly, and without fear of reprisal. Father, there are strong clouds on the horizon even today as various politicians seek to move to uh, pass legislation in the guise of uh, prohibiting hate speech and uh, hate language that would limit the pulpits of this country from speaking the whole truth of your word. And Father, we pray that you would continue to uh, open the eyes of the people of this nation to the truth of your word, open the eyes of the legislators and leaders of this nation to the implications of their legislation, and, Father, we pray that they would not render in vain the noble sacrifice of so many who have paid the ultimate price for our liberty. And we remember this morning those in the service who are fighting in Iraq, fighting in Afghanistan, those who are serving in covert operations in many other places in this world, that you would watch over them, protect them, those who have doctrine, that that doctrine would be uh, that in, in the doctrine in their soul would be significant for their day-to-day adversity. And Father, we also pray for the missionaries throughout the world who, are, who many of them are operating in politically sensitive areas and some who are in covert operations themselves deep in Afghanistan and other countries in Central Asia where they are translating your word 
into the native languages and presenting the gospel to those who have been blinded by the lies of Islam. Father, we pray that you would give them the courage, the stamina, the strength, and protect them from those who would seek to kill them. And that we might recognize that we are soldiers in that same war, and that we might have a greater understanding of our role as a result of what we study this morning. And we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Memorial Day. Memorial Day was originally called Decoration Day. And we don't know the exact origin of Memorial Day, but we do know that there's evidence that during the uh, what I refer to as the War of Northern Aggression, <laughs> that Confederate ladies were decorating the graves of the fallen heroes of the South uh, with flowers and flags during the war itself. There may also be evidence that the same thing was beginning to take place in the North as mothers and wives of those lost in the Federal Army were decorating the graves. By 1868, this had become a standard practice, and General John Logan, who was the National Commander of the Grand Army of the Republic and his General Order Number 11, first passed a resolution to observe Decoration Day on 30th of May, 1868, to place flowers on the graves of Union and Confederate soldiers at Arlington National Cemetery. When I first went up to Connecticut, first time I was really in the East, I had the opportunity Memorial Day after teaching on Sunday morning to drive down to D.C., and uh, Colonel Thiem was still going there to uh, for his D.C. conference at that time, and I would stay with Dan Ingram. And every Monday morning on Memorial Day, we would go out to Arlington Cemetery, and we always made it a point to visit the uh, memorial to the Confederate dead that's there. And uh, I would encourage you, if you've never had an opportunity, especially those of you who are parents of children, to take them to the D.C. area for vacation and have them spend a summer studying about what they're going to go see and then take them there. It is worthwhile, very important to, and also get some good books that have the truth in them about American history and not most of the slanted, distorted uh, propaganda from human viewpoint paganism. See, I'll tell you what I really believe. <laughs> that you usually get. See, very few, most of y'all in here look like you passed more than uh, 30 or 40 summers. Uh, this morning, but if you're if you're under the age of 50, you were probably told, uh, taught a very distorted view of American history uh, when you were growing up. If you're under the age of 40, you probably don't have a clue what American history is all about, unless you, uh, by chance, grew up in a Christian school or a private school where somebody had uh, the truth and could communicate that. Most of us have been taught a bill of goods about American history that has more error than truth in it. And, uh, you know, the old saying, the names were changed to protect the innocent. Well, the interpretation was changed to protect the guilty. So we have to recognize that the history that most of us have been taught has been uh, tremendously shaded by a theological presupposition. How about that? 
Everything ultimately goes to theology. Never forget that. It always, And I'm going to demonstrate that this morning. It always goes to theology. Anyway, that's the background for Memorial Day Decoration Day. After uh, uh, observance of 30 May was made, by 1890 it was uh, law was passed or regulations were passed that all of the northern states recognized Memorial Day. However, the South decided to choose a different day to honor the dead from the Confederacy. And to this day, there are different days in different southern states for the uh, recognition of the Confederate dead. If you don't know it, the day to recognize the Confederate dead in Texas is the 19th of January, which comes for all of you politically correct folks comes uncomfortably close to the observance of the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr. So we probably never hear anything about the honoring the Confederate dead in Texas anymore because that would just upset too many, too many folks. But it's in fitting this morning that since Memorial Day or Decoration Day was originally instituted to honor the the dead in both the federal and confederate armies during the uh, war between the states, that we utilize a battle in the war between the states as an illustration of the principle that I've been teaching the last three weeks, and that is on the ascension and session of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have chosen the Battle of Gettysburg because the Battle of Gettysburg, even though the right side did not win, in my opinion, is a perfect illustration of strategic victory on the battlefield and how that strategic victory was utilized to promote a political victory and a political cause that virtually changed the whole vision of America from 1863 forward. And that's probably something most of you haven't ever had the opportunity to to learn about. And if you're interested in reading a little bit of background on this, there's a book out that I recommend uh, by, by Thomas J. DeLorenzo. Thomas J. DeLorenzo. And he's written a book called The Real Lincoln. The Real Lincoln. And his, what's interesting is his conclusions about Lincoln, while he is very unsympathetic to Lincoln and portrays him as a power-hungry, which he was, a power-hungry big government tyrant, his conclusions completely coincide with the conclusions of Gary Wills in his book, The Gettysburg Address. And Gary Wills is a classic liberal. Gary Wills, of course, thinks that what Lincoln did was wonderful, but he comes to the same basic conclusion, and that is that uh, the Gettysburg Address, which Lincoln gave in the next year in commemoration of the of the uh, battle and those that had fallen in it, that in the Gettysburg Address you see a crystallization of all of Lincoln's political thought, and he was a big government federalist who really who reinterpreted the Constitution. Uh, in light of the Declaration of Independence instead of the other way around. And it changes forever the vision of federal government in the U.S. And the point is that I'd like to make is that if Lincoln had not been elected president, we probably would not have had a war 
Slavery would have passed from the scene within another 10 to 15 years. It was dying out already. There were more abolitionist groups in the South than there were in the North. Most of you probably didn't know that. And slavery really was nothing more than a, than a, a trumped up, not that it didn't exist, but it was a trumped up uh, cause that was used by certain factions in the North in order to... Uh, further a political vision of big government and that that vision of big government that began to dominate the north from the 1940s on was a direct outgrowth of something you never were taught about in school called the second great awakening the second great awakening was sort of a national revival movement that occurred in two stages in the west and in the east in early American history from about 1803, 1804, up through the early 1820s. And it was uh, the, the, the theology that came out of the Second Great Awakening was very poor theology. It gave root to the, the movements that eventually culminated in the Pentecostal movement at the turn of the 20th century. It was a very man-centered, anthropocentric, man-centered uh, theology. God became much smaller in their theology. So it, it, it changes how America views God, man, and society. It's a radical change from the vision of God, man, and society that, that dominated in the 1700s. And once you change that view of God, man, and society and how society is structured and the purpose of society in relationship to the church... You change your vision of government. And what most people don't realize is that the majority of evangelical Christians in the 19th century were post-millennialism, and that really had its roots in the Second Great Awakening. Now, post-millennialism means that you believe Jesus comes back after the millennium. See, we're pre-millennialists, before the millennium. Jesus Christ will come back and he will establish the millennium or the kingdom, which is what we're talking about. And see how all this ties together? This is what we're talking about in our, in our series. And we are pre-millennialists. But in the 19th century, most evangelicals in America, especially up through the 1880s, which is when dispensational premillennialism began to have an impact, most evangelical Americans were post-millennial. And most liberals, liberal Christians, Protestants, were also post-millennial. And in a secular sense, most non-Christians were influenced by, a post, especially in the North, were influenced by a post-millennial utopian philosophy that was uh, embodied in the writings and the teachings of people like Ralph Waldo Emerson and Thoreau and uh, the Alcotts and... Uh, uh, Henry Ward Beecher, uh, who was a well-known evangelical preacher, not, in the, not but I don't think he understood the gospel, and uh, and his daughter uh, Harry Beecher Stowe. See that connection? She's imbued with his post-millennial theology, and in post-millennialism, what has to happen is the church has to perfect perfect society in order to bring in the millennium. That's the important thing. So the majority of evangelicals, the majority of Protestant Christians in America in the 19th century, 
think that the, church, that the church, that the role of Christianity, and what kind of a culture do you have in 19th century America? Almost everybody's a Christian. I mean, when you talk about Protestant liberals and evangelicals, you cover about 90% of American culture. You don't start having the big influx of the Irish until the 1840s and the um, and Southern, Catholic, Southern European Catholics and Eastern European Catholics until after after the uh, war between the states. So, and they don't really have an, any kind of ideological impact on the, the thinking of America until at the earliest, the late 19th century. So we're talking about Protestants shaping American thought, and they're post-millennial. That means we've got to bring in the kingdom. We got to bring, it's our job to bring it in. And so, if and and they also believed that man, because of uh, various bad theology that came out in the in the North, came out through Charles Grandison Finney and some others, that man wasn't born a sinner. They rejected total depravity. So, if man isn't born a sinner, he's perfectible. Follow the logic here. If man is not a sinner, inherently a sinner, flawed with his sin nature, then he's perfectible. If the individual's perfectible, then society's perfectible. So what you have to do then is identify what practices are going on in society and get rid of those negative practices so you can perfect society and bring in the millennium. See how simple it is? And so what, what happens in the North is they bought into these theologies. The secular, the secularist view of transcendentalism was utopian and liberal evangelicalism in the north was post-millennial and they want to bring in the kingdom and so they identify the social ills and the social ills, if you think about this you, it maps American history to the present day I mean everything that's happened since 1865 is a footnote to what went on between the second great awakening and the war between the states and what, what, what took place in the uh, in, in their their thinking was that you have to get rid of slavery. The problems are slavery, alcohol, women's suffrage, women can't vote, uh, child labor, and uh, a big capital and their abuse of labor. Now, if you think about that, that maps out the social agenda of the liberal left for the last 150 years, and it's all a footnote to the shift that took place in American thinking that we can bring in the kingdom. And this influenced everybody, including Julia Ward Howe, who wrote the words to the Battle Hymn of the Republic. As she sat meditating on Revelation 18 and 19, which is the Battle of Armageddon, she writes the words, Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. When's he coming? Right now in the armies of the federal government. He's trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He's loosed the faithful lightning of his terrible swift sword. I've seen him in the watchfires of a hundred circling camps. See, all those Yankee troops, all those federal troops out there are bringing in the kingdom. See, I wouldn't even let, let my Yankee church in Connecticut sing this song. Because it's just, it's just post-millennial to the core. This is bad theology. Bad theology. And the third stanza, he sounded forth the trumpet that shall never call retreat. He's sifting in the hearts of men before his judgment seat. See, she saw that as happening right then in real time 
during the war between the states. And this kind of thinking influenced so much of our patriotic songs. We get this in the last stanza of America the Beautiful. And crown thy good with brotherhood. Oh, let's all hold hands now and, and, and rejoice in the brotherhood of man. See, that's a major plank in, in 19th century liberalism. And it just infects all of these songs that we sing. And uh, I'm just very careful we don't sing that stanza. You know, and, and what what I allow sung because you know why why have people pick up bad theology by singing singing these these songs? And, and if we're honest, you know the way we exegete scripture, we get into scripture and we say, okay, this was the author's intent, and this is what it means based on isagogics and based on context and all of that. This is what it means. So we come along, we sing a hymn like "Faith of Our Fathers," and we say, well, isn't that good? Or just a traditional hymn. Yeah, the guy who wrote it was a Roman Catholic, and that's what he's talking about. It is the faith of his fathers, according if you exegete it isagogically and contextually, he's talking about Roman Catholicism and and its impact on culture. He's not talking about uh, Christianity in general. He's talking about Roman Catholicism. But you know, whenever I talk about that to people, they say, "Oh well, we're just going to sing it anyway because we want it to mean this." Okay, well, why don't you throw the Bible out the door? You know, if, be consistent with the way you interpret everything. Interpret it isagogically and contextually. Anyway, that's my soapbox. But we, have to, we don't understand history, so we don't understand these things. We're never taught church history. You're never taught how theology impacts uh, church history in America. And, and if you want to have a great understanding of this... You need to go rent Gods and Generals if you haven't seen it yet. How many of y'all seen the film Gods and Generals? It's a long film. Y'all ought to watch Gods and Generals. It's the prelude to Gettysburg. And if you want to take a rainy weekend some weekend and really get a dose of a good, accurate representation of the war between the states, then you ought to rent those two films. When you're watching Gods and Generals, what you're going to see is the biblical Christianity that influenced the thinking of Stonewall Jackson and Robert E. Lee accurately presented. That's one reason it didn't do well at the box office and one reason the critics panned it is critics hate the positive expression of biblical Christianity. And in juxtaposition of that, what you'll see is when they're bringing out the, the thinking of, uh, of uh, I forget his name now, Chamberlain who uh, was the, uh, with the, I think it was with the 20th Maine, uh, defending the uh, battle on the Little Round Top at Gettysburg, which I'll go over that in just a second. And he was teaching in, I forget the name of the university, but it's up in Maine. And when he's talking about freedom and liberty to his students and later with his wife, rather than quoting Scripture and getting on his knees and praying with his wife as they read 2 Corinthians 5 together as as uh, Thomas Jonathan Jackson did, he's quoting, uh, he's quoting the great philosophers, Aristotle, others. He's quoting classic thought. So what you, what, what's portrayed there, most people don't get it, is, is really what I've been saying all along, is the ideology that's influencing the North is human viewpoint paganism that they've been imbibing for the last 30 or 40 years. And what's influencing the South is still a biblical form of of Christianity, and they were rejecting 
autocratic government, big government. Haven't we heard that before? Don't we talk about that still in political circles today as a problem with big government? That's what was going on. It, and, and slavery was just used by the, by the North as one of the social ills in order to promote the kingdom. And my view is that I've taught for years. I've even taught it to an assembly of all black people. They just love it. If you set it up right and teach the truth, people understand it. What happened in the North is that the that the abolitionists are operating out of arrogance. They deny total depravity. They deny substitutionary atonement. Finney rejected all of this. And man is perfectible and society is perfectible. It's our job to do it. Well, arrogance always creates division. Arrogance always sets up an equal and opposite reaction. And it's not justified either. But that's what happened in the war between the states. And so you had an equal and opposite reaction in the South. And the result is the nation really polarized over this and went to war, and that made everything worse, and we're still struggling with the fallout from that. What happened in England is just the opposite. You had two key leaders in the abolitionist movement there who were uh, uh, Granville Sharp and William Wilberforce, and they're both solid evangelical Christians who believe in total depravity, believe in the literal future second coming of Christ. They're premillennial. They believe in substitutionary atonement. And they believe that it's a role of Christians to impact and improve society, not perfect it. The result is that in the British Empire, the slave trade was abolished, and eventually slavery was abolished, but without the polarization and violence that occurred in America. Why did it occur in America? Because of bad theology. And that theology affected political theory, and the South rejected the, the theology that had influenced the North. They had rejected it. In fact, the biblical conservatives of the day, for example, the theologians at Princeton Seminary, never got involved in the abolitionist movement. Their theology was consistent with the Presbyterian biblical theology of the South. And it's amillennial. It's not postmillennial. And so they don't... Uh, they're not on this bandwagon to improve society, and so they don't get involved in this a- abolitionist cry. And they recognize that the end result of this is it's going to create federalism, a bigger federal government, as opposed to, to states' rights. And we still fight all this states' rights versus big federal government issues day in and day out, but it all goes back to that shift that took place. And... What enabled that to happen was a victory that occurred at Gettysburg. This victory occurs at Gettysburg, and that's where your strategic victory on the battlefield took place. And what happens is that if you look at the the map here, you have a can you see the arrow? Okay, you have these are the federal lines right here, starting down with big round top here, little round top and then Cemetery Ridge, and it comes up here and hooks over to the right on the map, and that's a button hook, and that's your classic configuration. And on the and here's the town of Gettysburg right here, and the Federals came up from the southeast here. The Confederate Army had come up from Virginia because uh, Robert E. Lee realized the South could never win the war without going on the offensive. See, you can't ever win by just being on the defensive. That's what Jesus Christ is doing right now in history. He, he is on the offensive. He carries out the offense, but not the church. 
The church is carrying out an offensive only with reference to spiritual growth, not with reference to bringing in the kingdom. The kingdom's going to be brought in by God who's told the Lord Jesus Christ, sit here at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. See, it's not Christ or the body of Christ that's making his enemies a footstool. It is the Father who is working in history. So Lee recognizes the principle of the offense, and he circles up, and, he, and they come in from the northwest, and the, there's just out the, the Chambersburg Pike here, uh, you have a little town called Cashtown. The troop, Confederate troops concentrated on Cashtown, Cash and starting on July 1st, they started moving down the, the pike into Gettysburg, and the lead unit was Heth, Heth's forces. And as Heth's forces started to come into Gettysburg, they ran into a forward outpost led by Buford, and they got involved in their first firefight here on the west side of Gettysburg on Seminary Ridge, and the Federals held the high ground, but they got overwhelmed by just the vast number of Confederates that were coming in, and so they fell back to Cemetery Ridge here. You've got Cemetery Ridge and Seminary Ridge, so you have to make sure you don't get your terms confused. Then you had uh, under uh, Jubal Early and A.P. Hill, uh, left flank of the, of the Confederacy swung around and hit Gettysburg from the north, pushing the Federals back to Cemetery Hill right here, and Culp's Hill. And this sets the stage for the battle. And the Federals have the high ground on, on um, Cemetery Ridge and Cemetery Hill and Culp's Hill. And then they also have the high ground down here at uh, Little Round Top. There we go. Now we got that working. Down on Little Round Top. So on the second day, what Lee tried to do was do a double envelopment and basically try to turn the corners of the Federals. Here, he had major battles up here in the arena of Culp's Hill. Eight-hour battle on Culp's Hill. And again and again and again, the Confederates charged, and they couldn't take it. They kept getting repulsed. They couldn't make an end run around them to try to turn them because there was a, a mill pond there, a large mill pond and a creek there. The mill pond was about four to five feet deep, and they couldn't get across it, so they were forced by the terrain. See, I'm, I'm trying to emphasize the principle of terrain here. They're forced by the terrain to do a frontal assault on Culp's Hill, and because the Federals held the high ground, the Confederates... And, couldn't defeat them. The same thing happens down on Little Round Top, and this is what the battle most people are familiar with. This is where Chamberlain uh, was down there uh, with the 20th Maine, and he, they go into battle. If you saw the film, it's just great. Jeff Daniels plays uh, uh, Chamberlain and just does a tremendous job, and the Confederate Army, the 25th Alabama, comes in from the west. They had to muster at 3 a.m., and they had to go all day before they could go into battle. So by the time they got there, they're exhausted, they're tired, it's July, it's hot, and their troops are falling out left and right, and they don't ha have their first charge up Little Round Top until about 4 in the afternoon. The other thing that gave the, the Federals an advantage was that they had a signal uh, outfit on top of Little Round Top, so all of the movements by the Confederate troops are being signaled back up to McClellan 
up here. So because they held the high ground, they were able to claim victory. And the next day, of course, the third day at Gettysburg is where you have the uh, Pickett's Charge, famous Pickett's Charge. starts about 11 in the morning, and they just go straight across the field in full frontal assault. And they barely make it to the federal lines before they're repulsed and they have to retreat. And there's a sign there. And the sign there marks the extent of their forward advance, and it says the high water mark of the Confederacy. The high water mark of the Confederacy. What that means is that was as that was as, that was their greatest advance at that point. From that point back, the war was lost, and it, it just everything recedes from that point back, from that point on. And when the Federals won the Battle of Gettysburg. That allowed Lincoln, that's allowed them and, and, and the North to implement the political agenda. And that political agenda is fueled by a certain view of the kingdom. Now, what I've been teaching for the last three weeks is that the kingdom is central to understanding what's going on with the ascension and session of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not that the church is to bring in the kingdom, but that the ascension and session of the Lord Jesus Christ is directly related to the postponement of the kingdom and the eventual establishment of the kingdom. And because he won the strategic victory on the cross, he is now using that in order to strengthen the Lord's case in the appeal trial of Satan through what he is doing in the church. And this is so important to understand. You know, A lot of what I'm covering may be a little bit new, may be a little different, but basically you've probably been taught most of this. I'm just coming at it from a little bit different angle, which is good for everybody to understand, because it helps us crystallize our view a little bit. And it brings us to a realization of what our personal sense, and I use the word personal sense of eternal destiny is. It's not just our personal destiny in time. So our personal destiny in time is determined by our eternal destiny as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and members of the church. And the more we come to understand where we're going and what God is doing through the church in the angelic conflict and what he's doing with believers in the body of Christ today, and what the, what the game plan is, the more we're able to let uh, to, uh, our understanding of the future impact our present decisions. And that's the bottom line. When we get through with all of this, no matter how far I get this morning, the bottom line is you're going to understand that so much that's happening in the church age Today, what God has provided in terms of the 40 things that happened to you at the instant of salvation, all the ministries of God the Holy Spirit, all of these are given to church age believers in order to prepare us so that we have the capacity and the maturity and the responsible and the responsibility to be able to rule and reign as kings and priests with the Lord Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom. And the point is that you will be in eternity what your decisions are making you today. You will be in eternity what your decisions are making you today. Your decisions today will determine 
your role and your function in the millennial kingdom. And that just changes so much of this dynamic. And the way we, we're able to operate this is because we're going to understand the strategic, the, 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 the fullness of the strategic victory of Christ so that that impacts how we understand our own role today. So I'm just going to breeze through a little review here of what we've done. We saw that when Jesus came to the first advent, it wasn't clear to the Jews that there would be two advents. They expected one, a one-coming Messiah. They didn't anticipate two comings. They thought when the Messiah showed up, the kingdom would be there. Second, the Jews misunderstood these prophecies about the glories and sufferings of the Messiah. They wanted the crown before the cross. They wanted the glorious Messiah before the suffering Messiah. John the Baptist, Jesus, and the disciples all proclaimed a message of repentance directed to Israel, not the Gentiles, and it was related to the kingdom of God. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The ministry of Jesus at that first coming was to offer the kingdom to the Jews, a legitimate offer. But the Jews rejected that. See, there was contingency in God's plan based on human volition. Now, God always knew from eternity past that the Jews were going to reject it, and he had plan B in mind. Plan B, or actually it's about plan Z. Plan, plan B is the church. But he didn't let anybody know that in the Old Testament because then they would have had a fatalistic view of the first coming. So they have a real decision to make. They make a bad decision. They reject Christ as Savior. They reject Him as Messiah. And so God brings in plan B. The Jews are put on the back burner, as it were, until the return of Christ. And He's going to do something different. Now, this was intended in the plan of God. Because in the church... God is going to give us certain capacities and abilities and provisions that he never gave anyone else before. And once again, he's going to demonstrate the same thing, that even though we have more than any other believer in all of history will ever have, the church age is still going to be characterized by failure. And at the, at, towards the end of the age, there's just more and more apostasy and rejection of Jesus Christ. And then the rapture is going to occur, and then we go back to plan A, when the rapture occurs, then there's the preparation for the coming of Christ. And we looked at that a little bit last time, and I'll tie that in in, in a second. Uh, the result of the rejection was that Jesus was crucified, buried, and resurrected, but the people of the kingdom had rejected the king, so the king had to expand his base. And since his people rejected him, the next stage in the plan was to bring in a new people to fulfill certain objectives in relationship to the angelic conflict. God is still teaching the angels about the importance of obeying him and being completely and totally subordinate to divine authority. And that only when we're completely and totally subordinate to divine authority can God work in and through us. That's what one reason we believe, or one of the reasons behind an absolute spirituality. That if we're out of fellowship, God can't work through us at all. There's no such thing, and you'll hear this from almost everybody today. That, well, you can be a little bit in fellowship and a little bit out of fellowship. You know, we all have mixed motives, and everybody goes, yeah, I have mixed motives. Because we do. But when they're mixed, we're out of fellowship, folks. (laughs) That's the point. You're not just a little bit carnal. 
I mean, you're either totally carnal or you're not. It's sort of like you can't be a little bit pregnant. Either you are or you're not. It's, these are absolute statuses. So, God's going to develop a new people based on a spiritual heritage, our relationship to Him by, via the Holy Spirit, not a racial heritage. So, to bring this about, Jesus ascended in order to send the Holy Spirit to give birth to the church of Pentecost. John 17, 6. I must go to the Father, Son, and send the Spirit. That is crucial to understand because it is the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's unique ministries in the church age that are foundational to our spiritual life. They are foundational to our spiritual maturity and they are foundational for us to understand so that we can mature and be prepared to function in the future kingdom as uh, those who co-reign with Jesus Christ. Immediately after the ascension... Jesus was honored by God the Father. He's given the highest position in the universe. This is It goes back to, to His humanity. Not in His deity. He already had that. But in His humanity. Because God is doing something through a creature to demonstrate that creaturely dependence on God is the only way to success. Now why is He doing that? Why is He doing that? Because Satan's basic claim is What? That a creature can find success without being dependent on God. And God's showing that only a cre- by a creature being completely dependent. That's why Jesus Christ, one of the reasons, that the Son becomes fully human. is He's going to fulfill the destiny of man in Himself to demonstrate this. Because man failed at the garden. And so it shows us that all of Scripture... From Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is integrally related. These aren't just independent stories, but there's a, there's a purpose to everything. There's a flow that has all this together. Genesis 1, 26, 27. God creates man to do what? To rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, and to have dominion over the earth. But Adam blows it in the garden... He loses dominion and Satan becomes the legitimate power base on the earth. That's why he can offer to Jesus the kingdom in those temptations in the wilderness. They're legitimate offers. Jesus says, no, I'm not going to get there by circumventing the suffering of the cross. And we know how horrible that was just by taking a brief look at what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's under so much physical pressure because of the anticipation of the pain of bearing the sin of the world, that blood is being forced out of his cells. He's sweating blood. That shows us how distressed he is. And that word is used, and that thought is communicated in the descriptions in the Gospels. He is distressed over what's about to come. But he's not responding to that distress through using independent means to solve the problem. See, sometimes when you come under pressure and you just feel really pressured by, that, by the adversity around you, you think that somehow you've already blown it. No. Jesus is feeling that, that emotional, physical pressure in anticipation of the cross, but he hadn't blown it yet. Now, if he responded to that by trying to circumvent it in an illegitimate way or solve the problem through human viewpoint, then he would have. But he didn't. And so he's elevated to the right hand of God the Father and seated 
at the right hand of God, and that word session that we use comes from the Latin term sessionum. You know, we just have to watch it today. We have to learn how to communicate to to most people today. They don't come out of a background of church. I'd guess most of y'all have been sitting around here listening to the Word for a long time. And uh, maybe many of you grew up listening to it. But you realize that most people in America today aren't really sure who Jesus Christ is. You've got such an incredible education and understanding of the Bible, but most people... Most people aren't even sure what the word Trinity means. And yet we have to learn how to communicate to them. And so often what I see, and I feel this tremendous, I'm sure Mike does too, feels this pressure as a pastor that I don't want to dumb down the Scriptures. But if I don't do something, I'm going to end up communicating to five people eventually because nobody else can understand the thing I say. Just think about the last three weeks. I've had a little, little trouble putting all this together. But see, this is important. The Scripture, and I'm just scratching the surface on this. And this is what we've done. We've lowered our expectations so much that we're down here thinking that, that we've got really deep Bible teaching going on. And uh, we're, just, we're just not even out of first grade yet. And then we think about what's going on out there. So we have to have a sensitivity as believers to being able to communicate this to unbelievers in language they can understand. We can't get real technical in our theological language because they just don't have the resources. Now we saw last time by looking at Daniel 7, Psalm 2, and Psalm 110 that during the session Jesus is waiting on something. But he's not purely passive. He's waiting for God to give him victory. He's waiting. He's praying. Psalm 2, he's praying that God would give him this inheritance of the nations. But he is active in calling out a new people which will play a unique role in establishing a testimony to God's grace and power in the angelic conflict. And we're being prepared to rule and reign with him in the future. Once the church is complete and that last person trusts Christ as Savior that completes the body of Christ, then the rapture is going to occur, and then that's followed by the tribulation period, and then at the end, Jesus Christ will return in victory and establish a Jewish kingdom. And what I mean here is that last time we looked at the fact that you have this picture in Revelation where the angels are distressed, John's just weeping uncontrollably because no one can be found to open the scroll. And the scroll is really a title deed to the earth. And we went to Psalm 2. And we saw that there's this decree that's made at the time of the resurrection that God decrees that Jesus is His Son. He is my Son. Not the Son in the sense of eternal Son of God deity, but He is the Son in terms of He's he's the one who will fulfill the Davidic covenant. He is the Son that is going to come back and reign as Messiah. And that decree is made at the resurrection. And that decree is essentially a title deed that will give him possession of the nations and that he begins to take that deed and to implement it in the tribulation period when he starts popping off those seals and you get the seven seal judgments followed by the trumpet judgments which the seventh seal contains seven trumpet judgments and then the seventh trumpet judgment contains seven bowl judgments so those seven seals that seal that scroll shut are the judgments that have to take place in order to prepare 
the earth for the coming of Jesus Christ at the second coming to establish his kingdom. And if you don't have the right view of the kingdom, you can understand how that can just mess up your whole view of human history, and it messes up your whole view of politics. It messes up your view of your own spiritual life because you're trying to maybe do the wrong thing. We looked at Daniel 7. I won't go through all this. Daniel 7, we just simply emphasized the point that the Son of Man is going to come and establish His kingdom. And there's a point prior to Daniel 7 where He doesn't have the kingdom. And the point I'm making is we're not in the kingdom in any way, shape, or form right now. Then we went to Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 talked about that declaration of the Son. And in verse 8, Ask of me, the Father says, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. So he hasn't received it yet. But right now he is asking the Father for the nations as his inheritance. And then, when he comes, you shall break them with a rod of iron. That's the tribulation period culminating in Armageddon. You'll shatter them like earthenware. And then we saw from there that the king would be a divine king. Daniel 7 called him the son of man, emphasizing his humanity. And I didn't have time to go through this, but the point that is discovered through much of the Old Testament is that a purely human king can't ultimately bring in the kingdom because of the flaw of human sin. So it has to be a divine a human plus divine king. The divine king is accepted by God. He's installed with full honors in his position. And there is a delay in the establishment and inauguration of the kingdom, the establishment of that position. And when he comes, he'll rule with a reign of iron. And then we are said in Revelation 2.27 to rule with him in that reign of iron. Overcomer believers will share that rule of iron will rule and reign with him. And then Psalm 110:1 the Lord said to my Lord sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. That's the most quoted verse in the Old Testament. It's the most quoted Old Testament verse in the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews is a development of the ascension and session doctrines of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the only epistle in the New Testament that deals with the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Did you know that? If you, we all talk about the priesthood of Jesus Christ, but it's only taught in the book of Hebrews. Most people never get into the book of Hebrews because it scares them to death. You have over 90 references to the Old Testament in the book of Hebrews. And if you don't understand all this kind of Old Testament background stuff that we've been going over for three weeks, you're just going to be as lost as you can possibly be trying to understand what the writer of Hebrews is saying. And so you end up in all kinds of uh, bizarre interpretations. And so what the function of the, of the Lord right now, the Lord Jesus Christ, is in this high priestly role according to the order of Melchizedek, this very ancient Gentile royal priesthood. Now, with ten minutes left to go, I've reviewed everything. But see, I just want you to understand this, how, how important it is to understand this overall flow. Because this stuff just doesn't happen by chance. Now, what's he doing? What's the Lord Jesus Christ doing? Now, this is not anything new. Most of you have heard all this before. But now, it's going to, you're going to be able to plug it into a little different grid than you had before. So, let's just skip past these uh, 
these slides. What we're looking at is now is the role of the Holy Spirit and how it fits into this. Ephesians 1.20. I want to look at two passages, one in Ephesians 1 and one in Ephesians 2. Or, uh, excuse me, Ephesians 4. And this is going to kind of pull it together. We don't have to do any real technical exegesis on this. It, it, the, the, the points that I want to make are just going to flow right out of it. Ephesians 1.20, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Now, what he's bringing about in Christ relates to the church age, that, that phrase. And it takes place when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That occurred ten days before the day of Pentecost. And he elevated him far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. What does that say? I've mentioned it about three or four times, and we had a great illustration from the Battle of Gettysburg. Jesus Christ took the high ground. Jesus Christ took the high ground in the angelic conflict. He's above all the angels, fallen and elect. He's above all the angels. He, in his humanity, has won the strategic victory. He has the high ground. He is at the command post of the universe, and he's going to, in his humanity, he's going to control, uh, control everything. Now, why does it have to be in his humanity? Because he has to fulfill the original purpose for the human race, according to uh, according to Genesis one twenty six to twenty seven. No other human being can do it because we are fallen. He still has to fulfill that in order to win and, and bring to, to, to completion that ultimate victory in the angelic conflict. It is won at the cross, but it's not brought to completion until actually the end of the millennial kingdom. Ephesians one twenty two, And he put all things in... He, that is God the Father, put all things in subjection under his feet, the Son... Now, where's the Son right now? Right hand of God the Father. Where are His feet? His feet are right there next to God the Father. In a a position of active, offensive action? Or is He passive? He's passive with relation to the kingdom. He's put all things in subjection under His feet and gave Him what? His head over all things to the church. Notice that what Paul does here is he directly relates the elevation of the Lord Jesus Christ to the right hand of God the Father to the giving of authority over the church, which is his body. That flows out of an understanding of the ascension. He's the head, that is, he is the authority over the church. Now, this is the Greek word kephale, and uh, kephale is a term that it always indicates authority. And it's a, a very important wor- word as it relates both to our relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ and the relationship of wives to husbands and the relationship of children to parents. Head is a word for authority. Uh, what you have from the liberal evangelical feminist crowd is an attempt to make it mean source. Attempt to make it mean source, because then uh, wives don't have to be obedient to their husbands. If the husband's the head of the wife, and the word means source, then that just means that the uh, 
uh, husband, the man is the source of the wife. You know, uh, Eve was taken out of Adam's side. He's the source. And so that way they get around uh, the authority passages. And eventually that means that's used to rationalize women pastors and many other things. Have you noticed just the multiplication of these churches where it says pastor is, you know, Bill and Betty Sue? And you have this couple that's that's there now. I know Baptist churches in Houston that are doing this, and that's coming out of this. So that's just a side side point. I have a friend of mine, uh, Wayne House, who's probably the foremost uh, scholar in this area in uh, evangelicalism, and he was day, he was up at Whit, Whitworth Presbyterian Liberal Presbyterian College up in Washington State a few years ago, debating Catherine Crager, who is the one of the foremost proponents of that view and uh, they got in this debate and she's arguing that head really means source and she's being you know very patronizing to Wayne who's got you know a couple of PhDs and two dual masters and and so when Wayne got his chance to rebut that he just pulls out this ream of paper and says well well I have a I have a, a printout here of every use of kephale in classic Greek and Koine Greek. Would you please point out to me the ones where it's used to mean source? You see, it's never used to mean source. Anywhere. Like we use the head of a river to mean source. You don't have that word used like that in in Greek. So um, it took them about a month to gain, regain control over the student body after, after Wayne was there and to re-indoctrinate them with their liberal agenda. There's the word kephale, which indicates Jesus is the authority over. And he's building this body right now. That's what's going on. That starts with what happens positionally in Christ with the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. That's the foundation. Never happened in church history prior to Acts 2. And at the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, Christ uses the Holy Spirit to identify us with his death, burial, and resurrection so that positionally we become what? New creatures in Christ. You are totally new at the instant of regeneration, at the instant of salvation. And we're baptized by means of God the Holy Spirit. Then we're indwelt by means of God the Holy Spirit. And this is a doctrine that is too often presented in a simple form as the Holy Spirit lives in you. But he's making you a temple. That's the point of the indwelling. You are positionally set apart for the service of God. You are not the same person you were when you were a scuzzy unbeliever. You're not. You're totally new. There's a purpose for that salvation. And you're given a spiritual gift. And that's the thrust of Ephesians chapter 4. And in order to help you grow experientially, you're given the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's skip ahead to Ephesians 4, uh, 7, and we'll just kind of uh, run through this a little bit in closing minutes. Just to set it up, Mike can come in and and develop this even more later, but this is the. I just want you to understand this. Ephesians 4 7 starts off to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. That grace was given emphasizes, let me see here if I've got a, emphasizes grace. Ditto me. That's the word that's used in both of these places. Grace was given. Ditto me always emphasizes unmerited favor. 
to each one of us grace was given according to a standard that is the measure of Christ's gift Christ determines how much you get and your proportion in terms of your spiritual gift and the giving of those gifts is then directly related to what? the ascension now I've spent three weeks talking about the ascension and the ascension is the foundation for the founding of the church the baptism of the Holy Spirit and consequently the indwelling of the Holy Spirit but also the giving of spiritual gifts and that's why Ephesians 4, 8, and 9 was quoted by Paul when he ascended on high he led captives a host of captives and he gave gifts to men so the ascension is related the strategic victory of the cross is then used in order to gain leverage for the church so that the church then can take that uh, strategic victory and use that as a fulcrum to blast off in their spiritual life and it's part of what's involved in this is the use of spiritual gifts something that unfortunately is distorted by a lot of evangelicals today I can't tell you how many times years ago I was in churches and they'd say, first thing you have to do before you get anywhere in the Christian life is to learn your spiritual gifts so you can do something around here. And see, they get the horse, the horse before the cart here. And uh, what you have to do is learn your spiritual gift and, I mean, learn, learn what, your, what spiritual life is all about and grow and mature as a believer. And as you mature, your gift will begin to manifest itself. But the goal is to get to that point where you're using your gift, but not just to use the gift. You've got to grow first. And just like in, in normal life, when you're three years old, you don't know if you've got a talent to be a doctor or a lawyer or an Indian chief. Of course, Indian chief, you might inherit that. But you don't know what your talents are. You may discover that, that uh, unusual cases that somebody has musical talent and something else, but you really don't know. It's only as you mature in life and eventually as you get into adolescence, you begin to manifest certain uh, desires and inclinations and interests. And then you begin to discover what your real talents are. And then you get educated in those areas. And then by the time you reach maturity, you can function uh, in terms of your areas of talent and gifts. And that sort of thing. Same thing in the spiritual life. You have to grow spiritually and then they become manifested. But it's important. Just because you don't put it first doesn't limit its significance. So he gives gifts to men, and verse 9 and 10 both reinforce this idea of ascension. It's used twice. That's why it's so important. Verse 11, related to this giving of gifts, he gave some as what? Apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the service. So here we're focusing on four leadership gifts, two of which are temporary. Apostles and prophets aren't on the scene anymore. So you're left with evangelists and pastors and teachers. Now, why are they given? They're given for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. For the equipping of the saints for the work of service. Now, I want to, I'm going to go through this. We don't have time to look at that chart today. Just skip through a couple of things here. To equip the saints. This is the Greek word katartismos, which means to restore, to equip, to train through discipline. That's the pastor's job, is to train through discipline. Also the evangelist's job. Notice the evangelist's job isn't to evangelize. Hello? 
The evangelist's job is to equip the saints to do what? To witness. See? Think about it. The evangelist is given to the church to equip the church to maturity to train them to evangelize. Now, he's going to evangelize, of course. He's going to witness. But the evangelist's job is to equip the saints for the work of service. That's his job description, same as the pastor's. It's to equip the saints to do the work of service. So he's to make them complete through training. Now, the overall goal is to equip the saints. That's the overall goal. Secondary objective is the work of service. So first job of the pastor is to equip. Because only equipped saints, that is saints who know doctrine, who know the word of God, circulating in the soul, can serve. You go to Umpty Dump Baptist Church down here and they're going to say, well, what do you want to do? Because their model is, let's plug you into teaching Sunday school, doing this or that or the other thing, and then we got you. You know, if we got you committed, then we got you and you'll be a member and then we'll start getting you to tithe and everything else. And it's the human viewpoint way of building an organization. Whereas the Bible says train people and then as they mature, they're prepared to, to, to serve. So you have to have equipped, serve, uh, equipped saints first before they can serve. And I have always tried to emphasize a principle that I want you in my church and Bible class consistently for at least a couple of years before you do anything. Because you're not coming here unless you're coming out of some background where you've already got a lot of training. But unless you you're understand what we're all about in terms of our philosophy of ministry as a doctrinal church, you don't have a clue. We're not like anybody else. And I want to make sure you're going to stick it out and that you're, you really have doctrine as a priority and not coming in here and just getting involved in some local church because that's where you get your, your chills and thrills. So you equip the saints for the work of service and all of that together builds up the body of Christ. All, the function of all the spiritual gifts builds up the local church. And that's indicated because you have your, your first preposition, pros, for the equipping of saints is your, is your overall goal. And then you have two different prepositions following that indicating your secondary goals. And now your ultimate goal is in verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of doctrine. Un, uh, attaining means to arrive at a destination or goal. The goal is a unity of doctrine. The goal is not to have a good time together or build a church. The goal is to have a unity of doctrine and of the knowledge of the Son of God, that is a complete Christology, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. There's your word play Roma. There's your word play Roma. And see, this whole thing, how do you get to play Roma? Because the pastor equips the saints... The saints grow to maturity and get involved in service in the local church. See, don't get the idea that service is, well, we're not going to do that. That's, that's an important stage in spiritual life. Service to the local body in terms of all kinds of things, especially in a small church. In a small church, it, the responsibilities for doing everything lie more heavily on the shoulders of everybody. You get a church of a thousand people, you get a bunch of people who can just sit back... And, and watch everybody else work. 
But when you're in a small church of under 100 people, everybody needs to put their shoulder to the grindstone at some level or another. And so it's so important for people to go through that growth process. And you reach a mature man and the measure which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And remember, the fullness of Christ was used back there in Ephesians 1.20 to relate to what happens at the ascension. So that the whole mission of the church in this age in terms of the growth process is a direct outgrowth of, of the ascension. So the thrust of Ephesians 4, 8 to 13 is he ascended, he gave gifts for maturity and fullness. So it's important to function within your gift within the local church because God uses all of that to bring about maturity. All of that is the outgrowth of the strategic victory of Christ on the cross, which culminated with his ascension and session. So that's all we have time for this morning. And if you want to learn more about this, then uh, that'll be something that Mike can teach in the coming weeks. But this gives you a foundation, and I hope that it's given you a whole new perspective on what is going on. This, the Christian life and what's going on in your life is completely informed by this whole subject. And you ought to listen to these tapes again and again. I've taught this four or five times. Every time I do it, I, it's like I'm opening up the gold mine all over again. And all new things come out. It's just, as I said earlier, it's not taught anywhere. And the only book that really develops it is Hebrews. And Hebrews, you know, and Hebrews isn't taught much. And in the middle of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, well, let's just get past all this elementary stuff and press on to the mature stuff. And everybody, everybody reads that, every Christian who reads that goes, that the first five chapters of Hebrews is elementary? Wait a minute, I don't even understand that. Well, that ought to give us a clue as to where we are and what, God, what God's standards really are. We've got a lot to learn. So uh, we have to make sure we're in Bible class all the time. Well, let's bow our heads, and I'm going to have Mike come up and close in prayer. Well, before, before we pray, I want to, again, thank Robbie for being here and uh, going over all these tremendous truths. I, I know exactly how he feels when you look up at that clock, and the time is gone, and you're just getting to the good part. Of course, it's all good, but... Uh, we do appreciate you coming and uh, sharing this with us. And we'll also be going over more of these things in the future because uh, it's so vast. That's what the Word of God is all of. It, it, you just The more you dig, the deeper it gets. And uh, so I just want to again uh, thank him for coming and uh, his staff also. Uh, he has faithful uh Believers that follow him and take care of all the logistics, and I uh, am privileged to have the same, and that makes a big difference. We don't have to be concerned with all the gizmos and gadgets; uh, we can keep our focus where it should be. So uh, now let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your plan for us, your strategy for the church for the revelation that you have given us in your word that helps us to understand this plan. It's absolutely imperative for us to have a purpose in life, to figure out where we really fit in. What is our 
real eternal destiny. Where do we fit in there? And we thank You that Your Word reveals all of that to us. Not only do we understand these things and appreciate the knowledge, but it is a great motivation for us to continue to move forward. It also gives us a deeper sense of appreciation of who and what You are. And we pray that You will help us all to stand firm, to stay the course, to continue our quest for more and more of that spiritual manner whereby we can figure out who we are, why we're here, but most of all to appreciate who and what you are. We pray that you will challenge us all to continue to meditate and dwell upon these things so that we can be enriched and so that we can fulfill our purpose. And we pray all of these things in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, most high and holy name. Amen.